God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. And I've been saying lately that he is an awesome God. Those of you that, well, some of you missed it, but it was, we had an awesome time here a few weeks ago. But as you've heard, Promises, Promises, Promises is the title of the sermon series that we are going through this month of December. And I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, said the phrase before, Promises, Promises, Promises. And it tends to kind of drum up or evoke cynical responses because of um, promises that have been broken in the past and where there are hurts and there are pains. It's like some and says, well, I'm going to do this, and you'll be like, yeah, right, okay. Promises, 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 promises. But in this um, sermon series, um, we are looking at the promises of God, which are very different to the promises of man, because who, who, he says, um, am I God that I should lie? And no, he's not. I mean, I think also with promises, a promise is something that is an assurance that we're given, and it's, it's given to us to evoke confidence in what we are going to receive. So, for example, we know that in various shops you will be given a guarantee or a warranty. They are giving you a promise that if anything goes wrong, then basically they'll sort it out for you. But we also know that the promise, the warranty, isn't actually any good until it's proven. So either you're going to a renowned um, a retailer where you know that, they have a, that, that, that their word is good, or you need to wait until the time of the proving to test the quality of that warranty. So, so to speak, there's another idiom that the proof is in the pudding. Until you've eaten the pudding, you can't tell that it is a pudding or whether it's a good pudding or not, but the proof is in the pudding. And so we're going to have a look at God's promises and see the proof is in the pudding or whether the proof is in the pudding. And we know that there's a scripture from 2 Corinthians 1.20 that says, All the promise of God in him are yes and in him, amen. And that is the strapline for the sermon series. Promises, promises, promises. Now today's message is the second message in the series. There are four messages because it's just through the month of December. And a couple of weeks ago, Malcolm spoke on carrying the promise. And this week, I'm going to speak on protecting the promise. And I have been given a very tight remit. I think all of us have been given a very tight remit. So I'm looking predominantly at the Gospel of Matthew, um, but with a single reference to um, Luke's Gospel as well. So there may well be other ways in which God's promise was protected, but my focus is on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew uh, 1, verses 24 and 25, and also uh, Matthew 2, 13 to 23, and then just from Luke 2, verses 1 to 5. So just a few verses. And hopefully, prayerfully, that as we go through today's message and also through the series, that it will help you to let go of any past hurts that you may have had in relation to the promises that have been made to you, and even promises that you feel that God still hasn't answered, prayerfully that you'll be able to go more confidently with him and stronger and deeper with him. We know that we need faith to receive these promises, some of these promises. God says that without faith, or the scripture says, without faith it is impossible to please him. We need faith. Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? So we all need more of it. So to protect the promise, this promise that's an assurance, to protect something is to keep it from harm or danger. So we're looking at the way in which God's promises are protected from harm. Um, And seeing all that can be done to make sure that it does actually come to pass. Now, Malachi was, is the last book of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, his book is the last one in the Old Testament. And it was written back in about 420 BC. So some 400 years 
passed before the Gospel of Matthew came. And in those 400 years, God was silent. And he was silent because he was upset. He was upset with the people because the people refused to listen. He repeatedly had spoken and spoken and spoken, and they repeatedly didn't do what he asked them to do. So he was silent. We know that he wasn't completely distant because we've just had in the Jewish calendar, they've just celebrated Hanukkah, which is a festival of lights, which is where the Maccabees were upset by the fact that the the temple had been destroyed. And they found enough oil. They wanted to consecrate the, the temple again and make it holy. And they found enough oil to look to, that would burn for one day. But what God did was he enabled that oil to burn for eight days. So one day's worth lasted eight days. So in that 400 years of silence, God was around. He just wasn't speaking. But suddenly, suddenly, by the time we get to Matthew, God begins to act. And he begins to move. And he begins to do it in a big way. So what we are going to see... That whilst God is, as we go through the passages, what we're going to see is that whilst God is protecting what I will call a macro message, a macro promise, he's protecting a big picture promise. And that promise is in the form of a saviour king. He also fulfills a number of micro promises along the way. So much of what God says has a, a now in the moment meaning, but it also speaks prophetically for something else that is to come. And so as we go through, we'll see that God uses a number of people, he orchestrates a number of situations, um, and he initiates a number of communications. But in the same way that God has this macro message and a micro message, as I go through, there are going to be two headings to each of my points. So one macro, one micro. And that will become clearer, hopefully, by the time we get to the end. So I hope you're ready for a journey. Shall we set off? So, my first point is titled Lineage. And the subheading to this is it should never have happened. It shouldn't have happened. And it wasn't part of the plan. So what we're talking about. So we're looking at Matthew 1, 24 to 25. And I don't know if the scriptures will come up on the screen because there were some problems with the IT. But what the scripture says, for anybody who has a paper Bible, or even if you're using your phone... Matthew 1, 24 and 25, the scripture says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And what we have here, the context of this is, so Joseph is being aroused from sleep, So he had been told, I think Malcolm mentioned this in his message, Carrying the Promise, that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And what happens with the Jewish weddings um, or marriages is that there is a year of betrothal, like a year of engagement. But it is a year where it is part of the legal contract. So if you want to get out of it, you have to go through process. You don't just throw the ring back. You don't just say, I want the ring back. But you have to go through a legal process. And Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and they were in this first year. But suddenly, Mary comes to Joseph, and she says to him, well, you know, I'm pregnant. And so Joseph, who was thinking, well, you know, I'm about to get married, and I've got to met this lovely woman, and we're going to spend our lives together, and we're going to do this and do that, and suddenly he's told that she's pregnant. But he knows it's not his child. So now what is he going to do? And he's thinking, well, I need to put her away. The law says I can put her away, but I'm not going to do it publicly. I'm going to do it privately. I'll do it quietly so that there's no, no big drama, no big shame. But he's kind of wrestling with this because he's a decent man. He's a decent man. 
But whilst he's sleeping and wrestling with this problem, the angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him to take Mary to be his wife. The angel explains that this is of the Lord. Her pregnancy is of the Lord. This is God's doing. And he says to Joseph, take her to be your wife. Even though this isn't your child, this is God's doing. So take, take her to be your wife. And what Joseph does, verse 24, when he's around, aroused from sleep, he did as the angel commanded. And he took to him his wife. We don't, the scripture doesn't tell us that he said, well, this shouldn't have happened and all my plans have gone to pot. You know, and he's not upset about this and distressed. We're told that he did as the Lord commanded. Joseph obeyed. He obeyed. He submitted. He put God first. He said, okay, Lord, whatever. And he did it. But, you know, Joseph, in terms of protecting the promise, Joseph was a key, a key player. He was a key player. And the, the reason that Joseph was important to this plan, God needed to stop Joseph from putting Mary away because Joseph was of the house of David. Joseph was from the tribe of Judah. Joseph was actually royalty. He was a prince. Now, we, it's, it kind of gets obscured in Scripture because the, um, the Israelites, they were taken into captivity. And prior to their captivity, there was a line of kings, a reign of kings. As you go through the book of Kings, you'll see this king, that king, every king going on and on and on through the years. But they go into captivity. And when they come out of captivity, you no longer hear of a reign of kings. But when you read through the genealogy, you will see that there is, once they come out of captivity, there is a person called Chialtiel. And he's the governor. So when they're released from the Babylonian captivity, Shealtiel is sent as the governor. But Shealtiel is one of the sons of the kings who had gone into captivity. So the royal line continues. And as you read through the genealogy, you'll see that Joseph's name comes up. So Joseph, even though Israel is released, they're not operating with kings anymore. Even though there had been a promise that there would be a king, they're not operating with a king um, in their daily lives, so to speak. They're actually in um, oppression. The Roman Empire is in control. They are subject to the, Roman, to, to the Roman emperor. So Joseph is a key player. If Joseph had put Mary away, then he would never have been attached to Jesus in any way. And what was needed was his lineage. For he needed to be the legal father of Jesus in order for Jesus to have the right to rule. Jesus was the promised Messiah. But in order for him to have the right to rule, he had to be part of the kingly line. So he becomes, Joseph adopts him. We're not told quite how that process worked, but he technically adopts him as his father. And I guess it was only Mary and Joseph who really knew well, perhaps the close family, whoever they told, that Joseph was not the actual father of the child. But as they grow, Jesus has the right to rule because of Joseph. It was important that he did not put her away. We saw also that the Lord, it's the Lord who he appears to him in a dream. He initiates the contact. He says, hey, 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 listen, I need you to do this, so please do this for me. So we see God... Um, very much in control, very much part of and involved in the process of protecting the promise. Joseph, we need you. Don't go. Don't, don't put her away. And so he takes her, takes her to be his wife, and he becomes the legal father of Jesus. So that's the importance of Joseph in, in this story in, in terms of protecting the promise, God's promise and his eternal plan. And we're told in verse 25 that Joseph didn't know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And so the scripture is telling us, he's confirming that this actually had nothing to do with Joseph, in terms of the, the, the pregnancy had nothing to do with Joseph. Jesus was not 
human from Joseph's line, but he was of God. The seed of God was in him. He was fully human, we know, because of Mary. He was fully human, he was fully God. But this is not Joseph's son, the scripture is telling us. He is God's son. Jesus is God's son. He's making that very, very clear. So that's the significance, the lineage. And it shouldn't have happened, but, but both Mary and Joseph are obedient to the Lord. They don't hesitate in doing what he asks. I think it's also shows us the the small message, the small, the micro promise that God fulfills is the fact that he made a promise to David in in the book of Samuel that David would have, that he would never, um, he would always have someone from his line to rule as a king. And so whilst God is protecting the promise of the Messiah that's coming, the the meta-message, the saviour king that's coming. He's also fulfilling the promise that he made to David that he would always have someone on the throne. So there is the significance of Joseph. He's a key player. And without him, Jesus would not have had the right to rule. So my second point is Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, the sub-message, the the micro-message is, it's the wrong time. I really didn't need this. And the scripture is, as I say, from Luke 2, verses 1 to 5. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it's the wrong time. Mary is with child. She's heavily pregnant. But they've got the call to go to Bethlehem, suddenly. Bethlehem, which is some 90 miles away from where they live. And as we know, they didn't have high-speed trains. They didn't have motor cars. This is going on a donkey some 90 miles, which I think from here takes us to about Stansted, on a donkey, heavily pregnant, I think it was, was going to take them some three or four days. So it's really the wrong time. They really don't need this right now. They just need to have the baby is, what, is how it goes. Except we're not, Mary doesn't think that and Joseph doesn't think that. They just do. But even as Malcolm has said, God is in control. And he is the one who turns the hearts of kings and rulers. Because in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He is the emperor that all the world, all the world... Not just a few people, not just Mary and Joseph, but all the world. But this, has been, this event has been orchestrated by God. He's turned his heart because he needs, God needs Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. He needs him to be born there because that's where the Messiah is to be born. So the census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And see, a lot of people were inconvenienced by this. Because all the world has now got to move and all the world has got to go back to where they were originally born. Their ancestral home, their ancestral lands. They've all got to travel. They've all got to journey. I guess it'll be a bit like Christmas here where everybody goes to their families in the different places and the transport system gets overworked and the roads get really congested. So everybody's moving back to where they, to where they originally come from, so to speak, so that they can be registered. And it's all about taxes, so they know who's, who's actually about... Um, and so that the Roman Empire can gain, get their taxes, but they've got to move. 
So Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It had been prophesied in Micah, um, Micah 5.2. It was prophesied that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. If Jesus never went to Bethlehem, he would never have been born. Well, obviously, if, if Mary and Joseph hadn't gone to Bethlehem, then Jesus wouldn't have been born there. He would have been born in Galilee, which was the wrong place for who he was. He needed to go there. And so God has turned the heart, the mind of the emperor to call a census at this time so that Mary and Joseph can move to where God needs them to be. So we see that God is orchestrating events. He's turning people. He's moving them to places. He's moving them mentally. He's moving them verbally. He's moving them physically to where he needs them to be so that he can fulfill his plans. But the whole, all the world is inconvenienced by this. While God is setting about fulfilling the promise that he made, he's, he's confirming his word, he's proving his word. All the world is inconvenienced. He had to be born in Galilee. And Micah, Micah's ministry was from around 740 BC to 710 BC. So we're talking some 700 years previous, God had spoken through Micah saying that Bethlehem was going to be a significant place. 700 years later, God is fulfilling that. That's no short amount of time. But God did not forget his promise, and he still set about doing it, and he was prepared to move the world, all the world, in order for it to be fulfilled. My third point is entitled Egypt, and it's really inconvenient. Timing couldn't be worse. So looking at Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So here, when they had departed, this is referring to the wise men. And I'm not going to say, I'm going to try and not say too much about the wise men because that's a message that's coming next week or part of the message coming next week. But there are some aspects of it that do overlap and that are significant. But when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So again, we see that God is initiating this. He has sent an angel to Joseph and he's now saying, arise, take the young child So Jesus is now no longer a baby, he's a child, so possibly one, but we know that he's under two and that will come in a moment. But he's a young child now and his mother. So Mary's given birth, she's now got a baby, and now she's being told she's got to move, she's got to flee to Egypt. They're going to flee by night, she's got to pack everything up, she's already moved, and when she left the first time she probably didn't have a lot of stuff with her, but she's moved around, she's settling, and she's got to flee again. And she's got to stay there. They've got to stay there until I bring you word. But again, we're not told that Mary is complaining. We're not told that Joseph is complaining. 
We're told that when he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. So again, Joseph and Mary are showing us that they are obedient to what God is saying. They are submitting their plans. They're not complaining. They're not saying this is really inconvenient. The timing couldn't be worse. Could you imagine it? I'm sure many of you can. Packing up and moving. And they were there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that um, quote came from Hosea, the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And again, this is many years before, decades before. 785 BC is when Hosea was speaking and prophesying. So again, some seven to 800 years before this is coming to pass, God had spoken through a prophet saying, so again, it's no short amount of time, but God has remembered his word. He says to Jeremiah, I watch over my word to perform it. So he's very aware of what he said, and he's going to make sure it happens. So the angel of the Lord, the young child, the divine command was to go, and immediately they went. But this is a flight that was needed in order to preserve life. The reason the promise needed to be protected was because Jesus' life was in danger. And obviously, as the saviour king that was coming, the whole plan would have collapsed if he had died before time. He needed to make it to the cross. He needed to die at the time that God had appointed, not because somebody didn't like him. Not because Herod was going to seek him to destroy him. Herod was not the nice man. He wasn't a nice man. You know he's not a nice man. He was cruel. And he shed a lot of blood. But the point of the flight to Egypt... There are also... In, when, when thinking about Egypt, there are many um, analogies to, even to, to Moses. Because Moses was somebody who came out of Egypt. He was brought up there and he also was a baby who... As, well, as a, as a baby, his life was in danger because Pharaoh wanted to kill all the youngsters, all the Hebrew boys, because the, he, the Israelites were growing and multiplying and getting stronger, and so he was threatened. So he wanted to kill all the baby boys, and he wanted to kill Moses, and he tried. But God orchestrated that so that Moses ended up in the, in the palace. He ended up, ended up living with Pharaoh's family, his Pharaoh's daughter, and he was protected in that. And after a time, Moses left Egypt. Moses was a deliverer. He was the one who took the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he's, all, he's like a type of the Jesus that was coming, the, the, the mega, the macro message, the macro, the, the big saviour, the great deliverer was coming. And Moses is like a prototype or a type of that. So when Jesus comes and he's going to be called out of Egypt, as Moses was called out of Egypt, as the Israelites were called out of Egypt, we see that in the moment of the calling, it was the, the word, the promise was fulfilled, but then the bigger fulfillment is coming, the fulfillment of the promise. So my fourth point is an, a hyena's crime. There's no micro-message there. And this is from Matthew two sixteen to 18. And Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. 
Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And you know, this um, is a hard passage. It's a passage that I read. I've read the Bible many times. But as you often find, you read something again and again, and suddenly, you know, it kind of speaks, and it's like, whoa, this is, this is awful. The massacre of the innocents. Babies under the age of two, killed, slaughtered. And, you know, we have the situation in Israel at the moment, and we've heard and seen some things about what's going on, and it kind of makes it a little bit more real that the slaughtering does happen. And they are, they are brutal, and they really don't care. But what this also shows us is the extent of the evil and hatred that was the force of it, that was um, focused and intended on Jesus. That even as a child, even as a child, the enemy wanted to take him out and take him out in such a brutal way. It is awful. So it's a display of the extent of evil and hatred towards Jesus, the Messiah, even as two. And at this time, we're told, we understand that Herod was about 70 years old. These are babies, young children, and he's threatened by them. But Herod killed three of his own children because he was power crazy, hungry for power. He didn't want to be not even deposed because his children would just succeed him, but he didn't want that, so he killed three of his own children. He really just did not care. It's absolutely awful. But, you know, I think I was also left thinking about this because I see in the scriptures that God orchestrated this, or this is something that you could argue that God orchestrated because Herod gets angry, and he gets angry because the wise men came and said, well, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They were looking for a king. Herod didn't know that there was a king born, but the wise men came and said, well, there's been a king born. So that's the first thing. The wise men followed a star. Well, who put the star in the sky? Who did that? That was God. So God led them there. They went to the palace. Did did they go to the palace just because they thought, well, that's where you'll find a king? And is that what alerted Herod? But God knows all these things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So it didn't take him by surprise that they were going to be going there. So now Herod's alerted and he says to them, well, come back and tell me when you find him so that I know where to go and get him. He doesn't tell them that bit exactly, but he wants to know where he is. But then God warns the wise men not to go back to Herod. So God is orchestrating this. He's very much in control of this. He tells, he warns Joseph to take Jesus and flee to Egypt. So then I'm like, well, so God, why, why did you just save the one? Why didn't, you just, why didn't you save everybody, all those babies? Is it simply, dare I say, so that the word can be fulfilled? I don't think so, because God loves us. His, his heart is for us. His desire is that none should perish. None should perish. But, I mean, we've, we've watched films in the past and it's been kind of like this one died and that one died of the good guys. And you're like, oh, that's not nice. But we've learned that there are casualties in war and sometimes bad things happen to good people. So I can't explain why there was the massacre of the innocents beyond the fact that it was said it was going to happen. God is mysterious. He is sovereign. He can do what he wants. He has a plan that we know nothing about, and we may not know the reasons this side. I'm sure we won't know the reasons this side of eternity. But Jesus was saved from the extent of this. And, but the, it is a reminder to us of the forces of evil that are against us. They are against us because we belong to Christ. 
the forces of evil that are against Israel because it belongs to God. The promises are to Israel. This is a reminder. It is brutal. What was said some 600 years before it happened, Jeremiah, he said, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But that also had a fulfillment previously because when the children of Israel were taken into captivity, Rachel was said to, was said to be weeping. When Jeremiah was speaking, it was for that moment of them going into captivity. She was going to be crying. Rachel is the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And she was buried near Beth, in, in Ramah, I believe, near Bethlehem. But she was seen to be weeping for her children. And again, 600 years later, she's weeping. The fifth point is home. Not again. This can't really be happening. I don't believe it. In the sense that they're being asked to move again. And this scripture is from Matthew 2, verses 19 to 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now the angel had promised to give him word. When he told him to go the first time, he said, stay there until I give you word. So the angel kept his promise. He came back and he gave him another word. So it's time to go. And it's an angel of the Lord. So again, God is initiating this communication. He's telling them it's time to go. The angel gives Joseph an instruction. He says, go to Israel. It's a fairly broad instruction because Israel is a large place. And Joseph is on his way back to Judea. Why Judea? Because they originally came from Galilee. Why Judea? Is that because it was the place where he last left and he went back to what he thought was familiar, comfortable? Because he thought that Jesus should go and be, uh, be brought up in the place where he was born? Don't know. He becomes afraid when he learns that Archelaus, Herod's son, who was quite like him in terms of his brutality and his wickedness, he gets fearful. He thinks, hey, I'm not sure we should be going there. And God meets him in that moment. He comes to him and comforts him in his wrestling. And he says, actually, go this way. Go to Galilee. Go to Nazareth. He tells him to go there. And there, again, in the same way that if Jesus hadn't gone to Bethlehem, he wouldn't have been born in the right place. In the same way, if he hadn't gone back to Galilee, he wouldn't have lived in the right place and he wouldn't have fulfilled the scripture that said that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I believe it's um, in Judges where Samson was called to be a Nazarite and a lot of the references go back there in terms of him being Jesus being called to be a Nazarene. 
And Jesus wasn't a, a, a Nazarite in the full extent, full and true extent, because Nazarites were supposed to not drink wine. They were not to cut their hair, and they were not to do a number of other things. But we know that Jesus did drink wine, and certainly, if the illustrations are correct, his hair wasn't long like Samson's. But he went back to Nazareth. But it was the place where he was supposed to be all along. And interestingly, it's the place where it all started. He began in Galilee, or his parents began in Galilee. That's where um, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary in Galilee, Nazareth. They left there, and they went to Bethlehem. They then went to Egypt, but they've now come back to the beginning. So right where the story began, they've gone full circle, and they're back in the beginning. But whilst they're in Nazareth, Nazareth was a place where the Roman garrison had its like headquarters, And so it was a place where the Israelites would consider that whoever lived there was a bit of a traitor because they were living kind of with the Romans. Um, So Jesus would have been considered a traitor. He wouldn't have been accepted. But I also feel that it's a place where his identity would have been preserved because nobody knew where he was from. They didn't know that he was actually born in Bethlehem. We're told later on that they thought that he came from Galilee. You know, um, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was an insignificant place, not the place for a messiah. So he was able to be there in obscurity, which perhaps worked to his advantage in some ways. But yes, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Take the young child so that he could grow up in the place where he needed to be and he would be called a Nazarene. So that is essentially the message or the points of the message. And what we've seen is that while God took us on a journey, as I've said, from Galilee to Bethlehem to Egypt... To back to Galilee, it's gone full circle. I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued by that. But I think that having pondered it, as I said, the proof is in the pudding. And if God had just left, because I'm like, why do they have to go through all that, all that travel, all that journey, and all those events? But God had spoken before, and He's saying, you know, or to me, He could have just left them there, and we could all say, yeah, well, you know. But God spoke 600 years previously, 700 years previously. He spoke a long time before. And and then he moves them and says, well, look, who's done this? I've moved the king's heart to do this. I've moved these people to do that. It's been highly inconvenient for a lot of people. Highly inconvenient. The whole world has been moving. And that is the way that God has proved. I said this. Um, I think Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you these things now, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. And it's the proving of the word that enables us to know that it's God. And it's the proving of the word over the extent of time. The extent of time. It's huge amounts of time that he's proving to us that this is, this is me speaking and this is what I do. This is what I do. I am God. I am in control of this. And if I've said it to you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to forget. And I'm not going to lie to you either. He's taken us on a journey. He took them on a journey and he's taken us on a journey. And as I've said throughout, it's evident that God is very involved in it. He's very involved in the protection of the promise, the protection of his saviour king, the protection of his only begotten son. He is very concerned with protecting him both in the womb and out of the womb. He had a plan and it had things had to happen according to his timing. Not anybody else's. His timing. He was protecting his spoken word 
the things he said, he was fulfilling them so that people would know that when I say the next thing, you'll know it's me and you'll know you can trust me. And he was protecting his physical word, the word of God, his spoken word, but the word of God, his physical word, he was protecting that. Because as I've said, if Jesus never made it to the cross, then none of us would be sitting here right now. We wouldn't be, well, we would, we might be sitting here, but we would be sitting here hopeless. We'd have no hope. There'd be no future for us. There'd be no change for us. There'd be no newness of life for us. There'd be no joy for us. So we thank God that he protected the promise. We thank God that he was very involved in the process. And we can take confidence from that, that he is very involved in, our, in the process for us. We're not here by accident. Not by accident. We're here by design. But like I said, there are two, there's the meta message, the macro message, and then there's the other message, the strap line, the micro message. When things that shouldn't happen, happen. When our nice, neat, cultural and social plans get messed up. Just think about it. It could be God at work. So we need to watch. We need to look for God, listen for him, and determine to obey and submit. I mean, I don't know if you can hear it, but I can certainly hear it. When things are going on, this, it should, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. But it might just be God at work. He might just be answering, uh, answering a promise for somebody else. He might be answering a promise for you, but you don't understand it. But it's inconvenient. When disruption and inconvenience messes up our daily life and our daily plans, how often do we say this? Why have we got to do this? When they call for another census, more forms come through the post. I don't want to fill this in. Why? But maybe God is at work. Maybe God is answering a promise or a prayer for someone somewhere else. Maybe he's answering a prayer for you even. I could really do without this right now. But it could be God at work. He could be fulfilling his plan. And even when it involves further disruption and inconvenience, you've had to move house again, swiftly, second time. Trust God like Joseph and Mary. Obey immediately because God could be at work. And it could be something, it could be a move that saves your life or even somebody else's life. So we need to, we need to learn to know the voice of God. We need to know when it's him as opposed to the enemy who's trying to mess things up. But we need to learn to know his voice so that we can move when he says move and go when he says go. And even when bad things happen that we don't understand, we need to remember that God is sovereign. As I've said, he is a good, good father. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We might not understand, but that doesn't change the fact, as I said, that he loves us and his desire is that none should perish. And when we get to house move number three, even more inconvenience and we're feeling really unsettled and out of sorts, uncomfortable because we are not in the familiar place with our familiar comforts around us. It could again be that God is at work getting you where you need to be. And I can testify to that completely. It doesn't feel comfortable. I don't like it here. It's scary because I am not in control. We like being in control. And God is saying, I don't need you there. I need you to be somewhere else. But he will also meet us like he met Joseph in his time of need. He will also meet us in our time of need. And he will bring the comfort and encouragement that we need. 
So God is God. He is in control. He is sovereign. And he is mysterious too. And whether or not his ways and means seem good to us, know that he is at work. He says that his ways are not our ways. Says Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth it shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in that thing for which I sent it. When God is doing what he's doing, he is sovereign, and we need to submit to that. He will protect his promises. If he said it, he will do it. And ultimately, the things that God does, he does for our good, for our good and the good of other people's. So count it all joy, my friends. When life is inconvenient, count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, James says, and this is, these trials are outward circumstances. When things ain't looking pretty, they're not looking how we want them to look. Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And patience, we know, is the ability to endure trouble, suffering, and delay without becoming angry. So if, you're, if you are waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, you can be confident that God is at work. Based on what he has done before, based on the way that he does things, you know that he is at work. And you might not be able to see it. But as I say, based on what he's done before, if he said it, he will do it. Amen.